This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father in heaven, our thoughts rise by faith to the temple in heaven. When we get there, we see that the door is open because Jesus has opened it. We step inside and we look around. It's incredibly huge. It's far higher and wider, longer and more glorious than we ever imagined. We have to blink because it's so bright. The main source of light is coming from way down there. The throne of God. There are the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the seraphim, the cherubim, singing holy, holy, holy. Everything is awesome. There are millions of angels waiting to do the bidding of the Lord of the universe. And then the heavenly choir practice is singing. Gabriel is conducting. They're singing anthems that Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart couldn't dream of. It's amazing. Glorious, powerful, beautiful, complex. Praising the King of Kings as only the highest intelligences of the universe could do. We look around at all this splendor, glory, and purity. And then we look down at ourselves and we're ashamed. With the prophet Isaiah, we cry out, I'm a person of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're ashamed to go forward. We want to go down and meet God, but we're embarrassed because we're fallen, faulty people. We hang our heads in shame. And then we look up. And we see someone we recognize. He lifts his hands. And there are nail scars in those hands. And he looks into our eyes. We look into his. It's like he can see every molecule of our being. He can look right through us. He knows every single detail. But he loves us. There's compassion and kindness and mercy, and forgiveness in those eyes. I must go forward. And his eyes pull me forward and I walk down that long crystal corridor in that vast temple, the control center of the universe. As I walk down, the angels take a break from their choir practice. I come down and I leave my meager gift, a little token offering, at the feet of God upon his throne. He thanks me. And then I turn to leave. After all, he's the CEO of a million worlds, maybe a billion, maybe a trillion, I don't know. He's got to be busy. He doesn't have time for me. 
And he leans down from his throne and he says to me, Stay and chat a while. And so we talk. He has time for me. I tell him of my joys and my sorrows, my struggles, my family, my church, my school, my hopes and dreams. And he shares his dreams for me, which blow me away. They're so much greater than any dreams I had for myself. He encourages me. He forgives me when I confess to him. He hears my plea for those I love who need to know Jesus better. He promises me his spirit, strengthens and encourages me. And I feel so good. I feel energized. It's wonderful. And then after a good long while, I turn to leave and I walk up that long crystal corridor. The angels start their choir practice again. They go to a higher key, modulate. They sing more gloriously than before. And as I get to the entrance to that grand place, I turn and look around one last lingering gaze before I have to leave. And it's so beautiful, so exquisite. Everything is so warm and bright and pure. I feel so safe. I don't want to go down to planet Earth, but I know I must. Because there are people there that need to hear about what I just have experienced. That I've come in by faith to the Holy of Holies of the Heavenly Temple. And as I descend, things get colder, darker. It would be depressing if I allowed it to get to me. But I know I've got to come back down. I also know that I have strength, courage, to go on another day. Because by faith, I have been with God. Amen. All right, we're doing the Spirit in the Sanctuary Sealed for Service, and I just realized, maybe this is a good reminder, let's turn off our cell phones. <laughs> And uh, pagers and so on and so forth. Okay, mine is off. The spirit and the sanctuary sealed for service. A lot of S's in there, but we'll, we'll try to figure out what is going on. So we're, we're, we're getting into the sanctuary-Holy Spirit connection. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with the sanctuary? And I think you'll find it's very interesting and relevant and practical. And hi, good to see you. Wow, I'm seeing... Friends here that I haven't seen for a while, and it's just a real treat. Okay, great. So, let's start here. John chapter 20, Jesus says to his disciples when he appeared to them after his resurrection, he said, peace be to you. And that was a good thing to say because he was sort of an apparition there and they would be afraid. So just relax everybody, at ease. <laughs> peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. <clears throat> now we could talk for several weeks upon just that one line right there. What does it mean to be sent as the Father sent Jesus? That's pretty profound, isn't it? 
Jesus was sent by his Father into this broken world in order to build bridges to heaven. Stairway to heaven. And um, in John 1.51, Jesus said to Nathanael, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's a bridge between heaven and earth. See? And we're here, connected with heaven, tapping into him. He is the only bridge between heaven and earth. He is the Pontifex Maximus, if I were to use a Latin uh, expression. The only legitimate Pontifex Maximus. That means the great bridge builder. Right? Because he's linking these two realms. I'm reminded of um, Jacob's ladder back in Genesis 28. You remember that story? In Genesis 28, he was fleeing from his brother Esau, lay down, and he dreamt that there was a ladder let down from heaven, or a stairway, stairway to heaven. And um, there were angels ascending and descending on it, and there was God beside that ladder. And Jesus now is applying that to himself. He says, I'm that ladder, I'm the bridge between heaven and earth. Now, interestingly, Jacob said there in Genesis 28, this is none other than the, what? House of God. That's Beit El, Bethel. That's where the name Bethel comes from. This is none other than the gate of heaven. This is where you can access heaven. Right here. So the next day he set up a stone as a, as a memorial. Now what's very interesting, gate of heaven. House of God, gate of heaven. In the Babylonian language, which I teach at the seminary, by the way, if you want to if you want to learn how to call people out of Babylon in their own language, um, in the Babylonian language, the name of the city of Babylon, which in the Hebrew Bible, Babel and Babylon is the same word. It's just Babel. Okay? The name of that city in the Babylonian language, called Akkadian, that language, Bab means gate, Eli means of God or of the gods. So the name Babylon means gate of God or gate of the gods. In other words, this is the holy place. They regarded it as a holy city where you could access the gods and they had this huge ziggurat tower. Now, of course, you know about the Tower of Babel, but we, that was long before. But later in the history of Babylon, archaeologists have uncovered the foundation for the Etemenanki, which means the house of the foundation of heaven and earth, a temple tower of the great high god Marduk, who was the city god of Babylon. Now, interestingly, that was where they thought that, that you could access um, God. So it's, the city's called Bab-Eli, gate of, gate of God. And what did Jacob say? This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. This is the gate of God right here. This is Bethel. But what's the difference, folks? What's the difference? One of them, the Babylonian one, was built up from earth by human beings, right? Jacob's ladder was let down from heaven by revelation, right? So that's a totally different orientation. Here's the two opposing orientations, salvation by your own works versus salvation by accepting God's grace by faith. That's the difference between the Pharisee and the, and the public, I was almost going to say the republic, the, the publican the tax collector, the IRS agent, and he says, um, the Pharisee says, oh, I'm such a good boy, I am. I fast twice a week, I give tithes, to, and I do all of this wonderful stuff. And the, and the 
tax collector, just beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, oh God, because I'm a sinner. Now, Jesus said one went away justified and the other one didn't. Those are the two approaches, the two opposite approaches that you find traced through the whole Bible. It's Bethel versus Babylon all the way through. And here Jesus, Bethel, Beit El, house of God. Jesus comes to Beit Lehem, house of bread, because he is the bread, right? The basic food. And he comes and he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. That is, you are ambassadors, you are messengers, and you know what the word messenger is in Hebrew and Greek? It's the same as the word for angel. And that's why the three angels' messages are proclaimed by messengers at the end who are human beings. Right? So you're all angels here. And believe me, you look like angels, I, I have to say. Okay. So uh, we are ascending and descending, in a sense, spiritually speaking, on that ladder which is Christ. You just heard the prayer, right, that I just prayed, where we're going by faith into the very presence of God. How are we getting there? Did you ever think about how we pray and how we, <laughs> how we accomplish anything when we pray? If it weren't for the sacrifice of Christ and that incense of his presence, which is offered up with the prayers of the saints, that is the holy ones, which are God's people, which are us, there would be no reason for God to even hear our prayers, would there? Our prayers would just bounce off the ceiling. That would be it. But because of what he's done, that incense goes up. And you know the word for burning sacrifices on the altar the altar of burnt offering at the Israelite sanctuary, the, word, the verb in Hebrew for burning those sacrifices is not just to burn up, to incinerate. It's another word which means to make smoke and it's from the same root as the word for incense. The smoke of the sacrifices explicitly in Hebrew is going up like incense from the altar which is burning animals that represent Christ. So it's only because of what he's done that we can ascend and descend upon him and we have access and the Father sends us into the world as he sent Christ. Now, interestingly, there are counterfeits. In, in Revelation chapter 13, you find another power that claims to be the one having access. This is the end time Babylon power. And uh, interestingly, this is a power that claims to have control over heaven, earth, and under the earth. And in fact, the top uh, CEO of that organization wears a crown that represents those three spheres that he has control over, which is why he can let people out of purgatory and stuff like that, um, those kind of things. But what does it say in Revelation 14, 6, and 7, the, the first angel's message? We're going to look at this more tomorrow. But it says, worship him who made what? Heaven, earth, sea, fountains of waters. Those are the different divisions. Actually, there were three divisions of the Babylonian cosmos. With Anu, the high god, Anu, ruling over the uh, heaven. Enlil, the air and the, and the ground. And Enki, the subterranean fresh water. Heaven, earth, under the earth. That's Babylon, right? But God says, no, it's not Babylon, it's me. I, I own it all. It's all mine. Okay? And it's Jesus. He's the only bridge builder between heaven and earth. So when we are sent, we're sent in the name of Jesus, who's already been sent, we walk in his footsteps. And I love what it says in 1 Peter 2. It says that we might walk in his steps, because he is an example to us, leaving us an example. 
Now, a lot of people debate about the nature of Christ. Was Christ uh, like pre-fall Adam or post-fall Adam and all of that? But what they're trying to, try to get to theoretically is, can Christ be my perfect sacrifice and simultaneously my perfect example? That is the example that I can follow. And that's what a lot of last generation theology is about. And we'll get into that a little bit tomorrow. Um, I mean, from the Bible, we'll be answering that issue. I won't be getting into a debate or anything. But in any case, look, the Bible explicitly tells us that Jesus is my perfect blameless sacrifice, right? Hebrews 4.15, tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And then 1 Peter 2 tells us that he is our example. So we don't have to concoct theories about the mystery of how Jesus could be fully God and fully man to explain why he's our example and our perfect sacrifice because the Bible explicitly says so. End of argument. That makes sense? Okay. All right. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now remember, the Holy Spirit is that term, pneuma in Greek and, and Hebrew, ruach. These terms are terms for wind. Remember this morning, John 3, uh, when you have the Spirit, it's like the wind. You don't see where it is, but you see the power of it. Sometimes it can get really strong. All right? But um, receive the Spirit. So he's breathing on them. All right? This is a breath. This is a wind. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Now, that doesn't mean that human beings have the power to forgive sins as God does. This apparently is talking about in the context of the body of Christ, the church, when there are uh, known sins that are open, you know, human beings can't read thoughts, but the church has, has the right to discipline, to maintain the purity of the group, and this is what it's talking about. But it doesn't mean that uh, human beings can condemn people to hell or not. This, that would be abused by human beings, wouldn't it? Right? And you remember in Mark 2, when the um, doctors of the law, the um, doctors of ministry and theology were criticizing Jesus because he said to the paralytic, he said, he said to him, your sins are forgiven you. Now, is it okay to forgive somebody? Yes, if it's between us. But to say, your sins are forgiven, they detected that it was the way God forgives sins. And they said, that's blasphemy. And they were right, unless Jesus were really God. He has never, ever delegated that right to forgive sins, which is why we read in Leviticus 4, 31, for example, the priest shall make atonement for him, that is by carrying out the ritual, and he shall be forgiven, not by the priest, but by God. Okay? So, that's what that's talking about. But notice, receive the Holy Spirit, and he is there, and the Holy Spirit comes from Jesus where he is right then. Alright, keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that idea. We're going to see that. This is background. Now, what's Jesus done? He's not on earth anymore. So he can't breathe on us the Holy Spirit from where he is on earth. He does that from where he is in heaven, right? Okay, but each, to each one of his grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We looked at this this morning. When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And that gift, those gifts include the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit is the most important gift he gives. And he did that from heaven. Where is he in heaven? He's in the heavenly sanctuary. So now when he breathes on us and gives us his spirit, he's doing that from heaven, from the heavenly sanctuary. So this is where the apostles 
and the rest of Christians through the Christian era needed to have their hopes fixed for receiving power from Christ and getting in touch with him was the heavenly sanctuary. Right? And his, you know, I, I happen to believe, and this is a, a big discussion and I could give you a whole other PowerPoint, but I personally believe that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he had access to his father where he was and it's his temple and he could go anywhere, including the most holy place, unlike the earthly um, high priest. But, but, here is a very important distinction. While he had total access to the Father all the time, unlike the earthly high priest, and the book of Hebrews is emphasizing that access, it's also true that there are two major phases of Christ's heavenly temple ministry, which are equivalent and functionally equivalent to the two phases that were in the earthly sanctuary. One of them is throughout the year, there's this work of mediation, with the lamps and the bread and the incense. You remember that? Okay? And then, so he's distributing the benefits of what he does, forgiving sins and so on. And then, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And we'll look at that. So there are two phases, two major phases, representing different eras, different phases of what he does. For the whole time from AD 31 to 1844, Jesus was involved in that first apartment-type ministry, but starting in 1844, he moves, as represented by a, a physical move, into most holy apartment ministry. Of course, he continues his mediation as well, so he's really working both, right? Otherwise, we'd all be lost, because <laughs> unless he's mediating for sins, you know, I started sinning in 1956, and I needed uh, mediation for that. I know what my first sin was, too. Yeah, we didn't have plastic baby bottles in those days. They were glass. And I used to take my glass baby bottle and drop it over the edge of my crib and watch it smash with the milk and everything. And I thought that was a huge joke and I'd roar laughing. That was my first sin. Okay? All right, now you know. That's the milk of the word. Okay. So, but um, Christ is involved in not only mediation like that, but now he's involved in a work of what we call judgment. But that is also a work of intercession. And I could go on for about a week on this topic because I've written books on it. Uh, God's Faulty Heroes is a a little thin one, but then there's other things as well. And um, that is a process that goes on until the end. Until the end, we call it the close of probation. I call it the close of judgment. And at that point, our salvation is set in concrete. We'll talk about that a little more later. In any case, two phases corresponding to the two apartments. Now, during that time before 1844, the apostles' hopes were fixed on that outer apartment. This is true all the way through the Christian era, including for us. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, notice in all points. Jesus didn't, wasn't tempted to Twitter. Uh, during class or um, <laughs> some other kinds of sins that we've invented but in all points okay, major categories he was tempted yet without sin so he this is, this is incredible he chose, he had free choice he could have made that choice to blow it when Satan said come on Jesus don't you want to get out of this whole mess 
Just bow down to me. That's all it's going to take. One little gesture. <laughs> it's all going to be over. He didn't do it. He, all of those temptations as, as he was growing up, to self-gratification, to lashing out when he was being ridiculed, and all those other kinds of things, he chose the right choice. That's amazing. And the greatest choice, the most difficult choice, the greatest temptation, I believe, of Christ, was probably not when Satan wanted him to bow down. I, that, that may have been very difficult. I, I know it was. The greatest temptation I think he would have had was when he was on the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels or 10 million or 10 billion. He could have. Uh, now, can you imagine this? If you're, if you're stuck in a really bad situation, you're homeless, you're starving to death, you're miserable, and you have a credit card that you could use. It's going to be a temptation to use that credit card, isn't it? He had the credit card of omnipotent power. And when those people are down there mocking him and cursing him and telling him all kinds of terrible things, ridiculing him, he could have just gone like that and they're gone. Right? What a temptation. His greatest temptation was one of not restraining. He restrained himself at that moment because of his love for us. And Ella White, I love what she says in Desire of Ages. He could have wiped the bloody sweat from his brow in the Garden of Gethsemane and left man to perish in his iniquity. The cup trembled in the balance. But he made the decision there. That's when the victory was won, when he made that decision. So that's incredible. So we can now come boldly. Wait a minute now. Come boldly. to. The, if I went to the White House and I decided I want to see President Obama, you know, I, I really had, I admire how he speaks and you know, some of his policies I may not agree with, but, but he's, a, he's a cool guy. He's very successful and I want to meet President Obama. So I just go up there and I just walk right into the White House. I want to go right into the Oval Office. How is that going to work out? Hmm. Yeah, people who do that don't have a very long expectancy for staying out of jail or alive or that kind of stuff. Okay, not going to work. Or Buckingham Palace. I want to see Lizzie. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Elizabeth. And I can't just waltz in there like Prince Charles. Prince Charles, by the way, is the heir to the throne, right? And Prince Charles can go see his mother whenever he wants. Hi, Mom. No. Hello, Mother. And um, so he has access. He has access to the reigning monarch of England, doesn't he? He can visit her in Windsor Castle and all that. Why? Because he's the son. Right? So when Jesus went to heaven, he had access to his father where he was. But now, that doesn't mean that Prince Charles is right now the king of England. He's been raised, bred for that all of his life. I guess he was bred before he was raised. But anyway, um, one day, suppose that Queen Elizabeth II gets tired of being queen. You know, that's a pretty exhausting job. You've got to ride around in a Rolls Royce and you've got to wave to people. <laughs> And you've got to go to the Trooping of the Colors, and you've got to go to the opening of Parliament, and you have to meet with the Prime Minister every week, and, and it just gets pretty exhausting, especially smiling at everybody. Um, so she says to herself, well, I no longer want to do this job, so I'm going to, yeah, I'll stay queen, but I'm going to take you, Charles, as, you'll be king with me. So she's going to have him, it's called a co-regency. Some monarchs in the Old Testament did that. Uh, for example, Uzziah's son, Jotham, reigned for a while while Uzziah, when he had leprosy. You remember that story? Right? 
a co-regency. So we're going to do this co-regency thing. And so there's going to be a big ceremony with lots of pomp and a lot of circumstances in, in uh, Westminster Abbey. That's where it always happens. It's happened for a thousand years. And so in Westminster Abbey, the Queen is going to be at one end and Prince Charles is going to mark, come in and she's going to come up to him to his mother and she is going to receive the kingdom. Alright? Does that sound familiar? That sounds like an illustration. Yeah, that's what we're going to see in Daniel 7. We're going to get there. Where you see there's access all the way through. But there is something different happens. And it's acted out with this coming. One coming to the other. Alright? To receive kingdom. And so Jesus has taken the first step. He's passed through into the heavens to where his father is. He has access. And because he has access, we have access through him. Because the veil was like his flesh in Hebrews chapter 10, right? And because his flesh was broken, the veil is open, right? We have access there. And Ellen White, I love what she says in Desire of Ages, the chapter, it is finished. When Jesus said, this is the end, it's finished. And she says, the way into the holiest was laid open. He has access all the way to the direct presence of God. Which is a wonderful thing because if you have a friend in high places, we're talking really high here, in high places, then you have power, right? That's why, that's why Mordecai had power through Esther because she had access to her husband. Not very much access, but some, uh, to Xerxes, Ahasuerus. So if you have access, if I have a friend who is a personal friend of President Obama, then I have power, don't I? I have access through that person. In fact, I got a job. Um, I told you this morning that I received my first teach, regular teaching job after studying a long time at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, because I knew someone in the religion department at Pacific Union College. We played tennis together. He knew what I was all about. He knew what I was doing, and he recommended me to the chair of the department, who then gave me a call and offered me a job over the phone which is pretty unheard of, right? It's because there was someone as a mediator for me. And that's what Christ does. We have access to the throne of grace through Jesus, which means we can come boldly. Now, that doesn't mean presumptuously. That means because we're invited. We don't have to come timidly. Oh, am I allowed in here? No. Hey, I got, I got the badge here. See? I can come boldly to GYC. I can come boldly to the throne of grace. Obtain mercy. Do I need mercy? Am I needy? Just ask my wife. I'm very needy. Yeah, try not to be too much of a burden, but yeah. When do I need Jesus? All the time. Certainly right now while I'm speaking to you. But I've asked for his presence and I know that he's here. Okay, so this is a wonderful thing. This right here, folks, is a hotline to heaven. You know, they used to be back in the Cold War. That's before most of you were born. I grew up during the Cold War when we used to do uh, drills into the radiation shelter, right? The fallout shelter and all that stuff. It was a dangerous place. We didn't know when the nuclear holocaust was going to be and all that kind of stuff. But the President of the United States had a hotline to the leader of the Soviet Union. Direct link. So that if anything happens and there's a mistake, they can put an end to this thing as fast as possible and not wipe out planet Earth. And I'm glad that the system seems to have worked. We have a hotline. And if, have you ever been out of range of your cell phone where it wouldn't reach to? That's a drag, isn't it? Especially if you're in trouble. 
you know, you get a flat tire or you're stuck or you're lost, uh, clear out in the boondocks and there is mountains out there and you just don't have any access. What are you going to do? Well, here is a hotline to heaven right here. And so you can pray. It doesn't matter where you are. You've got direct access to the control center of the universe, the oval office up in the sky. And you know how much power is up there? I didn't really realize, and I still don't realize, but, but I, I took my daughter um, September before last to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And they had an IMAX uh, film of the Hubble Space Telescope. And what they were showing from that space telescope were pictures of the universe. And they showed into that belt of Orion. Interestingly, where uh, Ella White said was the heaven of heavens. God is back there somewhere. He's going to come from, Jesus is com coming from there. And what they showed back there in Orion was so stunning because he was this huge big kind of a bowl. All these different heavenly bodies around, but it was kind of a big empty space in there just all glowing and pulsating with colors. And they said, if I remember it correctly, I don't know, somebody can correct me, it was like 93 or something million light years across that thing? Does that sound right? Millions of light years? You know how fast light goes? 186,000 miles per second. Multiply that times the seconds in a year, and then there are millions of those, and that's a measure of distance. We're talking a long way. The universe is very big, and that's only a little part of it. But what really got me was that they, they showed pictures of, they said, this is a, a young constellation, a baby constellation coming out from there. Woo. And I'm, I'm thinking, God is back there, and he's just winging new constellations and frisbees like frisbees out into the universe. Constellations and galaxies. And you know how big these constellations and galaxies are? I mean, we're in one of them. It's just uh, gigantic. And he, it's just like they're frisbees for him. Just, here comes another one. That God is so huge. And yet I have access to the control center of the universe? I mean, that's big. That's really big. Now, that is a massive differential in power between God and Satan. Satan was an incredibly glorious being. And he, was, he could sing, I understand, in multiple voices at once. He could be a choir, singing counterpoint by himself. He could do a Bach fugue if he wanted, or, or better. He was a rock star. I mean, well, okay. You know what I mean. He was drop-dead gorgeous. He could sing incredibly. I mean, he makes Elvis look like... Well, anyway. Um, yeah. And has incredible power and tries to convince everyone that he's the ultimate. There are people on planet Earth these days who try to tap into his power. And they do. They, they take evil spirits, fallen angels, into their bodies to, to have power. Intentionally possessed. People in occult, witches, warlocks, people like that. And there's a, a book that um, someone shared with me a few years ago and I read it, a little bit of it. Um, I understand that the, the theology of the rest of it isn't to be endorsed, so I'm not endorsing it, but it told a story that got me to thinking. And that was, this book is called He Came to Set the Captives Free uh, by Rebecca Brown. And it's about a woman that this, Rebecca Brown, the author, was a physician. And she treated uh, a lady 
that um, she gives a pseudonym because it would be dangerous to reveal her real name and the lady is, is dead now but this lady was a, a witch and she was converted to Christianity and she told her story to this doctor and she was this lady was um, the top bride of Satan in the United States with everything that implies and she describes her wedding night with Satan appearing as a human being and the whole experience. I won't get into the gory details. She describes a black Sabbath where they crucified a hitchhiker and mocked him. It was, it was just a parody on the crucifixion of Christ. Mocking Christ by human sacrifice. Right here in the United States. Okay? So if you hear about missing people, maybe sometimes that's where they, they go. D don't hitchhike. Um, but the thing that really got to me was that I'm, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because this this uh, witch um, was told along with the, the high priest and she and the high priest used to have sex on the altar as part of their ceremony at this one of these things it was just horrible but she and the uh, guy that was in charge that is the, the high priest and others of their group were told by Satan to go and kill a family of Christians who were starting to um, win some of the members of this satanic group to Christ. Okay? And that is, that is absolutely crossing the boundary. You know, Satan wasn't going to allow these people to go. He had them absolutely captive to himself. And, and these people, you wouldn't recognize them on, on the street, apparently. These are often people in high positions, and they travel on corporate jets. They used to fly here on a, on a, on a private jet to California, to mount mansions out there, tucked away in the hills somewhere. Anyway... Um, they, they said they were commanded to go and, and um, kill these Christians. Now, these witches were told along with demons. And the demons would appear sometimes horrifying monsters, eight foot tall and so on and so forth. They could just tear people to shreds. The witches have taken the power of these demons into themselves. And the more power, the more demons they have inside themselves the more power they have. And they have spiritual warfare sometimes between them where they'll try to call out demons from the other one and it actually can result in the death of the witch who loses. Uh, and they do tests like, for example, shooting a bullet at one of these witches and they're just immune from any kind of harm like that because the demons protect them. Um, so the power that was marshaled here against this Christian family was just amazing. Human beings could not stand up against it. Ephesians 6.12, you remember? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, and that is true, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness in high places. And so all these demons and witches and all these of this gang go levitating across to the family to, to, to where they were just going to kill at night. They got to the property where the home was of this family, and all around the perimeter of the property were bright, shining angels of heaven standing next to each other, making a wall around the place. And the angels, I mean, the witches have seen angels like this, and they have a term for them. They call them linking angels. Okay? So it's a technical term by witches who have experienced this. Now, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, don't believe in the great controversy. The witches do, because they're involved in it from the wrong side, okay? And so um, they, they go and they try to force their way through those angels to kill those Christians. 
And they, they can't make any headway. Can't do a thing. And the angels are just standing there smiling. And they can't do a thing. Angels don't even raise their hands. And these powerful demons, they use their you know, karate and kung fu and whatever. I don't know what they use. Actually, they have these spiritual powers that they try. Couldn't make any headway. And finally, after a while, the angels just sort of got tired of it. And they just frowned. And at the frown of the angels, just the frown, all of these powerful forces of darkness fell down flat and were completely defeated. Because you see, the fallen angels, these demons, are created beings who have lost a great deal of their life force because of sin. See, we were originally created with a powerful life force that gave off a powerful aura, undoubtedly, probably an electricity force, I imagine, um, that was a garment of light, right? But when Adam and Eve sinned, we lost that garment of life. We lost most of our life force. A lot of us died at that point. Right? We're much weaker. These fallen angels have lost a lot of their power. The angels of God who have stayed in touch with him, the source of power, are so much stronger. Amen. And so, but then when, when God offers to me, not only, he says, if God is for you, who can be against you? That sounds pretty good. And it's absolutely true. But he also offers to have us accept into our lives, minds, and hearts the power of an angel? No. The Holy Spirit, who is God himself. And we're talking about a power differential here. A, a fallen angel who's several notches down versus the infinite power of the Holy God, the Holy Spirit, who can be part of your life and controlling your life. Now, there is a huge difference between the two. The fallen ones seem stronger many times. You know why that is? Because they don't respect your free choice. They shove their weight around. That's the difference. And you find this in Genesis 4, verse 7, when uh, Cain is contemplating the first homicide. And God says to him, if you do well, that's okay. But if not, sin is crouching at the door. Crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. Now, what crouches at the door? Until recently, we had a, a pussycat. His name was Shere Khan. And he was a very nice pussycat. Um, unfortunately, he developed feline AIDS, and so he had to go to a rehabilitation place. But Shere Khan used to sit, crouch by the door. And his desire was to get inside where it was warmer. We live in Michigan. And he thought he, he wanted to be an indoor cat. But I'm allergic to cats. So we had a place for him outside uh, in the barn. And it was warm, but he, didn't, he wanted to be inside. And so sometimes we would find, we'd go down the, downstairs and there would be Shere Khan on the couch. He must have slipped in between our legs or something. He didn't knock. Think? Well, is that the kind of thing? Is it a pussycat that wants to get in and sit on our laps and purr? Is that what sin is? That's more like a saber-toothed tiger. It wants to bust the door down and it, its desire is for you. Because you're good. Alright, sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But what does God say? What does Jesus say? Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and what? Knock. And if anyone will. That's the difference between sin and Satan that doesn't respect your free choice. And God, Christ, has, he's the creator. He made you. 
He has all the power of the universe. He could vaporize that door instantly, and yet he stands at the door and knocks. He respects your free choice. So not only do you have the greatest power of the universe accept, accessible to you, to be in you, to help you, to live and breathe as a human being the way God intended for you in the beginning. You know, a lot of people think that sin, just to be human is to sin. It's just like uh, Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil can't make you do nothing unless you agree to do it. See? Unless you've given yourself over to him and then you're his captive. He can do anything he wants with you. Yeah. So Jesus respects our free choice. We can have the greatest power so that we can come to that throne of grace. We have this way more mercy and grace than you could ever imagine. All right, let's go on. After these things I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. Praise the Lord for that. It's standing open because Jesus opened it. John was in the spirit. Okay, so he's having a vision. And behold, a throne set in heaven. One set on the throne. Here is the vision of God upon the throne in the heavenly sanctuary that I prayed about. But it also says, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay. So the lampstand is representing the divine spirit. By, that's the perfection of spirit. The Holy Spirit there is represented by that lamp. Now, what is that all about? Look back in the Old Testament. You'll find in Exodus, it tells about these lampstands. Okay, here's a lampstand, had seven lamps, and where's it located? In the outer apartment. Okay, the first part. So, we're looking into the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary with John in Re Revelation chapter 4. From there, Jesus was dispensing the Spirit to his followers just as he breathed on them the Holy Spirit when he was here back in John 20. Does that make sense? Okay? And the lamps, interestingly, had decorations on them. They were in the, in the shape of almond blossoms. Anybody know why they were shaped like almond blossoms? You learned something about that? Yes. Okay, the almond is the first, or at least it was in Palestine, was the first tree to blossom and bud in the spring. Therefore, the Hebrews called it, in Hebrew, shakeh, which means the watchful one. The watchful one. And that's interesting. So almond blossoms on the lamps. It's representing watchfulness. Yeah. Now, those lamps were on in the sanctuary all through the night, right? And the sanctuary was God's palace, wasn't it? The dwelling of the heavenly king. And it had a throne room, which is the Holy of Holies, and it had a living room with light and bread and incense, incense to keep away the smell of the surrounding community uh, at mealtime. All right. Now, that lampstand was on all night, though. So, while it has a light in it, it has other things like a residence of a human king would have. There are differences, aren't there? Because a human king would sit on a throne. Yes, there's a mercy seat, but that just, that's a translation. Place of mercy or place of atonement, really. It's, it's closer to that in Hebrew. God was actually enthroned up in the air above the cherubim. He didn't sit down. He didn't receive his food by eating that bread on that table. The bread went to the priests. He just got the incense that was burnt. 
The food on the outer altar, it's called food in Numbers 28, verse 2. Lechem, lachmi. Lechem is a word for generic food or bread. Remember, Jesus came from Beit Lechem, house of food. And there, that uh, is called food, but he just gets it in the form of smoke. So there are some things that are very different than the palace of of an earthly king. And one of them is that the light is on all night. He's not a modern day student. (laughs) Some Some of you know what I mean. Or authors, I've stayed up. I, I don't want to ever do this again, but I've stayed up several times, 24, working 24 hours to, to finish a project. Twice, 40 hours straight. Um, that's no good. That was, that's a bad example, and I shouldn't even mention it. But um, God, you know, ordinarily people back there, they, they were sensible, they didn't have electricity, and they worked during the day, and at night they went to sleep, and the king's lamps would have been out. Gods are on. Why? Psalm 121, verse 4. He who watches over Israel slumbers not, nor sleeps. Praise the Lord for that. So at night, out in the wilderness there, any Israelite child could wake up and be a little afraid at night. You know, there's Midianites out there, and Ammonites and Jebusites and websites, and you know, all kinds of things out there. Um, and there's, there's scorpions, and there's uh, poisonous snakes, and so on, and there's all kinds of things that you could imagine. And so if this, if this child is afraid, they, they creep over to the corner of the tent and they lift the tent flap and they look out and there, what do they see? The light is on in God's house. He's awake, he's watching over them. And there's that pillar of fire that is protecting them as well. Okay, so the lamps are a wonderful thing and that represents watchfulness. Did you ever wonder why Aaron's rod, Aaron's rod that budded was um, an almond blossom? Did you ever wonder about that? You did. Good for you. Well, it's an almond blossom because God then goes on to say that he's watching to make sure See, it has to do with watchfulness. He's watching to make sure that the people are going to respect Aaron as their high priest. And you get to Jeremiah 1 and God says, what do you see? First vision of teenage Jeremiah. What do you see? An almond branch. Yeah. And he says, I've seen an almond. And God says, you've seen rightly for I am watching over my word to perform it. So this is not an interpretation that we're reading into Scripture. This idea of the connection between watchfulness and Amun is right there explicit in Scripture. And so here is watchfulness, but associated with the Holy Spirit. See? And here we have in Zechariah a lampstand with seven lamps, and there are olive trees, and there are pipes into the lamps, giving it a continuous flow of oil so that these lamps never go out. And then... The message of all of this, the moral of the story is, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, whose name, by the way, means seed of Babylon. Zeru is seed in the Babylonian language. Seed of Babylon, that is one who's released from there, come out of her, my people, right? Uh, Not by might nor by power, that is not by human might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's the power that's going to accomplish great things. Because this Zerubbabel is the one who was trying to build the temple again. All right, so the lamps are associated with the spirit in Revelation 4. The seven spirits of fire are the lamps in the heavenly temple. They're the real thing to which all of this points. Okay, so that's a wonderful message. And the spirit, of course, is omnipresent and omniscient, can check out things. This is the eyes of God everywhere, roaming through the earth 
to see how things are going on. And God is keeping in touch. It's God's internet, right? The Holy Spirit is like God's internet uh, system. Christians now are sealed by the Spirit. Way back in the early Christian era, in Ephesians 1 here, in Him, that is in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does it take to be sealed by the Holy Spirit? Believe in Jesus. Have you believed in Jesus? Then you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Alright. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That's a wonderful thing. So, I believe it's crucial that we understand that the Holy Spirit is here with us. It's not like we, if we don't see the ground shaking and tongues of fire on each of us and all of that, that we don't have the Holy Spirit. If you believe, if you really accept, your sins are forgiven by Jesus. You have connection and oneness with Him. It's not just legal, but it's an experience. All of that's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Okay? What we're just seeking for is enhancement of allowing more of the Spirit into our lives to take over so that His will can be completely done through us, that the world can be uh, warned and encouraged to accept Him and then the end can come. That's what we're seeking. Okay. Now, this is in 1 Corinthians 6. Notice something about the Spirit and sanctification here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he has a bunch of different kinds of unrighteous people. And such were some of you. But you were washed. That is morally washed. Right? When did that happen? When did, at what point of time in a person's experience did that happen? Conversion. They were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So Christ and the Spirit, distributing the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice, are accomplishing the washing, sanctification, justification. Now, notice, in Greek, these are aorist tense, which means at a point of time in the past. You were. It's already happened that you were washed. Yes. You were Wait a minute. Ella White says that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Right? How dare the Apostle Paul contradict Ella White? You were sanctified. It's not a contradiction? Why isn't that a contradiction? You explain it to me. Well, uh, the, the, the fact of being sanctified means several things. Being set aside for a holy use mm-hmm. and the process of sanctification is not that you're, you're constantly being set apart from uh-huh. things, but you've been sanctified at one particular point in time. The process of the sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Oh, that's good. So he's saying there really is no contradiction and that you were sanctified at conversion, but it's a process, which is the process of a lifetime. So really the two ideas are complementary. Like many supposed contradictions in the Bible, they really are not a contradiction. Now, in fact, this principle is illustrated in physical terms at the Israelite sanctuary. Because holiness is defined by God, right? That's what holiness is. It's his attributes. You know, we say set apart for a holy use. Well, what's a holy use? So you can go around in circles. Ultimately, it boils down to the fact that holiness 
And sanctification is the process of becoming holy. Consecration, same idea. Is all defined with reference to God. God alone is holy. He alone is immortal. 1 Timothy 6.16. And we are holy to the extent that, and if we have a connection with him. He makes things holy that are connected with him. Like sacrifices and priests and temple and so on and so forth makes them holy. So at the Israelite sanctuary, you know that there was a courtyard and there was a holy place and there was a what? Most holy place. Do you know why it was called the most holy place? Because that's where God was. And as you go from there, things get less holy. Now there's a gradation in the materials of the sanctuary, right? The closer you get to God, the fancier things get. You're going to find the same thing if you go to Buckingham Palace or the White House or uh, the Vatican or anywhere else. The closer you get to where the important person really is, who runs the administration, the more valuable things are going to get. So there's gold inside, bronze outside. Uh, The fabrics are more ornate inside than they are outside. Access is more restricted inside than outside, right? Because the the lay people could, could go out into the court, but the priests alone could go into the sacred tent and only the high priest into the Holy of Holies once a year. Just like, again, Buckingham Palace, Oval Office, everything else. Restriction of access according to, according to gradations of how close you are to the most important person. And there's also a gradation of clothing. The high priest had more ornate clothing than the other priest. He had four more garments than the other priest did, and so on. So what we're seeing there is, yes, holiness. All of the Israelites were holy, but the priests were set apart to be more holy. See, there was a gradation. Degrees of access, so that these folks here could be sanctified at a point of time, which meant that they now belonged to God. They had a a, a special relationship with him as their Lord, but that relationship grows throughout life. That grows, and that's a wonderful thing. Let me ask you a question. Was the thief on the cross sanctified? Did he receive sanctification? Yes. Was it the work of a lifetime? Just a very short lifetime. That's right. Okay? So that's how that works. But you were justified, and notice that the Spirit justifies you as well. That's very interesting. Because the Spirit justifies by bringing Christ into your life as your substitute. Right? So that you become just before God. And the point of this is that God needs to make you just in order to be justified in saving you. Romans 3.26 God is just when he justifies those who believe on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. Why is it necessary for God to be justified when he does that? Because he's giving mercy. He's giving mercy, right? And the judge needs to be justified when he's giving mercy. Let me ask you this question. Is it the job of a judge to forgive people? No. You find that even in Deuteronomy 25, verse 1, where Moses was telling the judges that you're going to be be vindicating the innocent and condemning the guilty. That's what a judge does. Solomon's prayer, 1 Kings 8.32. He says in his prayer to God there, he says, God, vindicate the innocent, condemn the guilty. A judge is not in the business of forgiving. Right? Paul Paul is a lawyer. Yeah. Has his law degree. Um, That's not a judge's responsibility. When I was a student at UC Berkeley, 
I heard about a, um, a judge who was kept letting go a rapist. The rapist was a nasty dude, and they called him Stinky. And he kept raping people, and the judge kept letting him go. And they were very, people were very upset about that. A judge is not supposed to do that. Now, what about God? Is God our judge? I'm going to back you into a corner. Look out. God is our judge. Has anyone here ever been guilty of committing sin? <laughs> Has anyone here ever been forgiven? Does God have a problem as judge? Because he's been doing what a judge is not supposed to do. See? See the problem? And that's what the symbolic defilement of the, of the sanctuary is all about. Because when God forgives people, he takes that judicial responsibility. Which, as the woman of Tekoa said to David in 2 Samuel 14, verse 9, she said, Let the iniquity, that is the guilt, the culpability, the blame, that is for forgiving my guilty, murderous son, be upon me and on my father's house. See, the king wasn't involved in that murder. But he would have received the blame as the judge if he forgave a truly guilty person. But Christ died so that God could be just when he justifies those who believe. So that God can be fully just and fully merciful at the same time, which David didn't succeed in doing. And that's a tall order, but it's absolutely necessary. Why? Because God is love. And love includes mercy. We knew that. But you know what else love includes? It includes justice. What's the use of having mercy if you don't have justice? You could have asked Rosa Parks that question. December 1955, Montgomery, Alabama. I was a little baby in Australia at the time. But uh, Rosa Parks sat on a bus where people of her complexion weren't supposed to sit because of America's apartheid laws. And she got taken before the judge. And what if the judge had said, well, you look fairly harmless. Um, you know, this law we have, it's a good, good law, it's a just law, but... But I'm going to have mercy on you because you look fairly harmless. I, I, I think I'm just going to let you go. Is that what she wanted? Did Rosa Parks want mercy? She wanted justice. What's the use of having mercy if you don't have justice? Or justice if you don't have mercy? We need both of them together. We need what Psalm 85 verse 10 talks about. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's the great romance. Only God can get mercy and justice back together. And it all happens in Jesus Christ. And it happens right there in the Holy of Holies where you have the kaporet, that place of atonement above the law. Mercy and justice are met together. Yes? Well, you know, I would say it differently. I wouldn't say God is above the law. I would say God is the law. The law is his character, his personality. If God compromises his love, what is going to happen? He's, he would be committing moral suicide. Not only that, he would destroy the universe. You know, the reason for that is because, what's the big deal about, I've been talking a lot about love here. And I mean God's pure kind of love, not that Hollywood you know, saturated with self-gratification kind of feeling, kind of slushy-mush stuff. Um, all right. 
it's a, it's a principle, basically it's on selfishness. Right? And God's principle of us unselfishness is what holds the universe together. The reason is because love is the only principle on the basis of which intelligent beings with free choice can coexist harmoniously without destroying each other. That's an important concept. I'm going to repeat that. Love is the only principle on the basis of which intelligent beings with free choice can coexist harmoniously without destroying each other. That's, that's kind of a loose quote from my book, Alter Call. So that's the importance of love. So if, a good concept for marriage, yes, right. So if God, that's why, that's why God is constrained. Satan can break the rules in all kinds of ways, but it takes God quite a while to work this out so that we are attracted to his love. We're not forced. We had a comment over here. Can I go back to sanctified? Yes, please. We talk about sanctified that happens and sanctification is a process. Mm. Ephesians chapter 1 says sealed. When you believe, you're sealed. Yep. And what is the sealing that we're expecting when probation, probation closes? Okay, we're going to get to that. Thank you. Good question. Uh, notice, you were sanctified means you belong to God. That's essentially the same thing as saying you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's doing this, right? Sanctified means you belong to God. Those priests belong to God. That's why they had blood that was applied to their, their right ear, their right thumb, and their right toe. Meaning they're going to obey, do, and go according to what God wants. Right? They belong to Him. The ancient Israelites belonged to him because he set them free, brought them out, um, carried them on eagles' wings. So let's go on. But we see now that sanctification is accomplished by the Spirit. But let's just briefly review something we mentioned this morning because we want to go on beyond that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The love of God is being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So here we're being put in, in touch with, that is, we're being <laughs> implanted with the basic principle that creates harmony in the universe and harmony with God and is the basis of obedience. It's empowerment for obedience. This is incredible. This kind of power. So if we find ourselves that all of our promises are like ropes of sand, as Ellen White said in Steps to Christ, and nothing is, is working, and we're just caught in this vicious cycle that is spiraling downward and everything, we just call out, help God. And you remember what happened with Peter? Peter was walking on the water. Right? That wasn't an easy thing to do, not a natural thing, walking on that water. But then he notices the wind and the waves, and he looks down, he sees himself, and he starts to get nervous. Because why? He's taken his eyes off Christ. Taken his eyes off Christ. It's like water skiing. You've got to hold on to the rope. If you let go of the rope, down you go. You've just got to hang on to that rope, and he'll take you through. Okay, now, this is confirming. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. The whole law is based upon love. It's all summed up. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus said in Matthew 22, when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? He says, love for God and love for, for men. See, the whole law is reflecting that principle of God's character, which makes the whole universe hang together. Aren't you awfully glad that there's someone in charge who knows what on earth he's doing? I talk about intelligent design in every way. 
I mean, otherwise we'd have all kinds of things colliding and relationships colliding, and it would be chaos. Um, you, you know, people talk about ev- evolution and things happening by chance. That's contrary to the law of entropy. You know the law of entropy? That if left alone, things just deteriorate towards chaos. And uh, I think one of the greatest evidences for ag- against evolution and for creation is my office at home and my garage, which, left alone, always tend towards chaos. Okay. Now, this is a very powerful passage. Do you know what sanctification is? Sanctification happens at conversion. It's the work of a lifetime. But what on earth is it? It's kind of a big word. Theologians talk about it. They talk about the relation with justification, and they try to slice it up and separate it from from, justification between that and sanctification. The reality is they go very tightly together, don't they? It's like a living organism. There are different aspects of one relationship when Christ comes in, substitutes for you. But not only that, he dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. And, and you're thereby transformed from the inside out. But here, Paul says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Notice, increase and abound in love. Establish your hearts blameless, blameless in holiness. What's the relation between love and holiness here in this passage? They're the same thing, aren't they? They're functional equivalents. That's a parallelism. You do this so that you have that. Okay. In other words, the way you grow in holiness is by growing in love. Doesn't that make sense? It's incredibly logical because... God is love. And holiness is God. So if we become more like God, which means by sanctification, it's through becoming more like him in character. Right? And he said in Leviticus 19, verse 2, he said, Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in the middle of that chapter, verse 18, he says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. According to Mary Douglas, that's the thematic heart of the book of Leviticus, which is the foundation, central book of the Torah, which is the foundation of the whole rest of the Bible. And there's love right in the middle, the important part in Hebrew thinking. Okay, so love, growth in holiness is growth in love. Wow, is that a paradigm shift? You don't have to wait until you're old and gray and all your juices dry up. (laughs) No more hormones or any of that kind of nasty stuff. Um, So that you can be holy. Praise God. I agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah. So this means that we young people... Okay, you young... Well, anyway. (laughs) We can experience sanctification. And notice, here's the purpose of it. You grow more and more holy, more and more loving before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. This is preparation for the second coming. Right here. And how do we get that increase in abound in love and that increase in holiness? How do we get it? Through the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of the Spirit in preparation. Now, we had thought that sanctification was some abstract thing that we didn't... Now we know that it's down to earth. It's practical. And it means loving somebody today more than I did yesterday and tomorrow more than I I did today, right? In the practical, little things and big things of life. 
It's growth in a relationship. It's like growth in a marriage where you look at each other after 31 years of marriage in my case. Um, we look at each other and we love each other now more than ever. And that's a wonderful thing. Okay. Now, the purpose of this holiness, of this love, is it just for ourselves? Love is never just for ourselves. It's always outgoing. And we're going to see tomorrow, our session is going to get into the Elijah message, which is the practical demonstration of what it's about. What is the present truth for the end time, given the message of the Holy Spirit and the sealing? What is it we need to be doing? We, we can talk about that. And the Elijah message of Malachi is quite specific. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, it's right in harmony with this. It's the growth in love. And I think that we as Adventists, ah yes, we love those beasts, don't we? We love animals, like lions and bears and leopards and what, T-Rex, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so, those are very important. No question. And a lot of the other details, those are very important, and I teach them. We need to know the detail. In fact, when you have a relationship, you're getting acquainted. Is anyone here engaged? Anyone here engaged? You're engaged. Praise the Lord. Anybody else engaged? Great. Recently married? Dating. All right. All right. Some of you are. My daughter just got engaged. She's getting married next June, so I'm having to try to save up and so on. But it's just wonderful. She's got a great fiance. Um, <laughs> And I'm remembering, I'm remembering back when my wife and I were getting together. Let me ask you a question. Some of you know this by experience, okay? When you're getting acquainted with someone, and someone tell, says, I know something about that person, are you going to say to them, I don't bother with me with all that detail? Are you going to say that? Oh, tell me every juicy little morsel. <laughs> you want to know the full scoop. You want to know everything. All right? So why do, people, why do people say, oh, that's heavy. I don't want to know all that about God. That's too complicated. You know, they'll spend hours and hours installing a, you know, some kind of software or whatever, doing all kinds of complicated things. But when it comes to, they just want to be stuck with, they just want the milk of the word. Right? Yeah, low fat at that. <laughs> Soy milk, whatever. Just the milk of the word. They don't want to progress on. Okay, but the reality is, that even the deep things, the mysteries of God, nothing ever departs from love. It's all, it's all part of that love. It doesn't mean that it boils down to nothing. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, somebody was traveling on a plane, and um, somebody said to them, what do you do? And the man said, I'm a theologian. Another person said, ah, you don't have to know all that stuff. All you've got to know is, Jesus loves me, this I know. Now, see, that sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? Well, and then the theologian turned to the other person and said, what do you do? I'm an astronomer. And a fourth person said, you don't have to know all that. You just got to know twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we want to know as much as we, we want to know what God has revealed that is for us. We want to know. Okay. Most holy place ministry. Then he, the high priest, Shall take a censer. I'm wondering if we should have. You want to take a break for five minutes, get a drink of water, go to the bathroom? Let's do that. Then we're going to go into most holy place ministry and we're going to shift into the end time. The end time seal. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC.
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.